This is The Real Good Podcast. My name is John Roebuck and with me is... I didn't write nicknames down for you guys. That's right. Uh, I'm Flappy. With me is Flappy Arms, <laughs> Derek Armstrong. And, and you're Skippy. And Skippy Blake Curtis. I like Flappy a lot. This is uh, this episode is called Wild Colonial Film, and that's because we'll be talking about Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. A laugh a minute. A laugh a minute. Here's a synopsis we found on the internet. S- set in nine, se- set in eighteen twenty-five, Claire, a young Irish convict woman, chases a British officer through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness, bent on revenge for a terrible act of violence he committed against her family. On the way, she enlists the services of an Aboriginal tracker named Billy, who is also marked by trauma for his own violence-filled past. Critics are calling it the comedy of the year. <laughs> uh, who wants? Who started last time? I started last time, and I regretted it. Uh, Blakey or Derek? Uh, I'm happy to start. Um, this film started really, really well, or strongly for me. I um, like, you know, okay. Spoiler alerts, as we always do every yeah, time. Spoiler. Like the image of that poor baby um, in that horrific scene at night where the husband dies and the child dies like i i i that scene of the child dying is going to stick with me like forever like even having seen the film i've only about a month or so ago i've already thought about that scene three or four times like it's yeah it's pretty horrific and then unfortunately as soon as they go off into the forest it just becomes a mess like and it's really unfortunate because like i said i was really like i saw saw this with john and we both had a similar thought process that like yeah the start was so cool it's like a really interesting atmosphere it's a scenery that we don't usually doesn't usually get much exposure um and the relationships were really interesting to watch and then yeah like it's like when they went out into the forest it's like oh it's you and me and now it's me and that guy and then we're switching and then it's that guy and it's just like oh god like that that the middle section just needed to be rewritten and it's reworked. a bit of a narrative mess, isn't it? Oh. And I think there's, uh, it's less. Uh, uh, I feel it's a it's a patchwork of occurrences, and I think uh, th- there's nothing inherently wrong with the uh, each um, ingredient of the patchwork. But Jennifer Kent, the director, I don't feel uh, uh, weaves that weaves them together uh, that, uh, into a coherent, satisfying whole. And so, like you said, the film jumps around from occurrence to occurrence, and ultimately um, le- leaving you with a sense of dissatisfaction because she really doesn't have any sense of ha- how to uh, uh, construct uh, and develop a narrative, which. Uh, on concept alone, is an incredibly strong uh, uh, narrative, mm. um, and yes. Well, the, the thing I would disagree with about the opening being th- the best part is that the parts that resonated with me more involved Billy, which is this is the second straight podcast we've had a lead character named Billy. Billy, uh, as played by 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 colleague Ganimbar, um, is the tracker, and I felt that his story resonated a lot more with me than hers. And uh, one of the reasons for that, I think, is that I found her reaction to her husband and child dying to be very clinical in nature. Um, I think that Jennifer Kent wasn't interested in exploring maternal grief per se, but she doesn't seem, she seems to be more angry Mm. than sad at these things that have occurred to her. Um, Like the loss of a child, you kind of have, you kind of feel like that is a scarring episode 
that would drain you of your resolve almost. Like I, I, I just you just flop on the floor and you, you couldn't go on. And instead, it makes her angry. And I didn't quite relate to that emotional journey of hers. And I was much more interested in the way that Billy is conscripted into the scenario and involved um, as so many uh, indigenous people were at that time to kind of do what the white people wanted them to do even against their own interest. Well, see, in theory, I actually didn't mind that uh, uh, she had the less believable, uh, perhaps more straightforward, less engaging um, uh, journey because uh, I, I think hers was a pulpy revenge story. And what I think the Nightingale should have accomplished uh, had had uh, Jennifer Kent had a better grasp on how to develop a narrative was using this pulpy revenge story. This essentially, you know, like um, very, very sort of uh, almost genre-ish uh, story of a, 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 a woman following these uh, perpetrators of her husband and baby's murder across the overland Tasmania into the deep bush uh, and use that uh, to engage the audience and then use Billy's uh, story and Billy as a character to comment on uh, the atrocities committed by uh, the colonisation in um, or the col- colonial Australians and British in Australia against the indigenous population of Australia. So it was almost and, like a bait and, and switch kind of, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, uh, arguably the uh, a movie solely about those atrocities would be just incredibly grim, such as like a film like 12 Years a Slave, which mm. I'm not a huge fan of, which is just showing you uh, atrocities and it hams it home to the point that it's just an almost unbearable to watch. And I think a point is often made better made indirectly, and which is why in theory... The idea that you're engaged with this sort of like uh, um, sort of exciting revenge story, uh, but really what's on Jennifer Kent's mind is exploring uh, this genocide. Mm. In theory, I think that could make a wonderful film. And uh, The Nightingale, it's always more frustrating to me, a film that really has incredible potential and doesn't quite get there. Mm. And I think that's what happened with this film. Well, it's like, and like similar to what you were saying, I think the way, you know, that character you know, was reacting to that situation with just anger. It was just like that anger was demonstrated quite early on in the character's journey. And then she had nowhere else to go. Mm. She just played the same note over and over and over again. The anger, the anger, the anger. And it was just kind of like, you just got to evolve that further. Well, like she, she's just, she say to, when you just said, uh, yeah, she played it over and over again. I think that also relates to uh, something that's been uh, particularly contro- contro- controversial, sorry, about this film, which is the, uh, you know, explicit um, depictions of uh, sort of sexual violence and violence. And Jennifer Kent just hammers these scenes home to the point after a couple of seconds, they lose all purpose in the film. And I don't, I, I'm okay with seeing, uh, for lack, okay for lack of a better word, uh, with seeing explicit violence and explicit uh, sexual violence in films as long as there's a purpose. And she'd fulfilled her purpose uh, the first scene after the first time you saw it. And there's something sort of perverse about a filmmaker just showing you these things. And if the purpose is to put us into uh, the exper- what that character is experiencing, that's kind of messed up. And well, it's kind of like what Lars von Trier does. Like it he is. Just but, uh, and it just hammers you. And it's not just uh, uh, scenes of, uh, you know, uh, um, horror uh, in films. It's any scene. There's, there's films where, you know, characters drive around for, you know, five straight minutes and it's just monotonous. Or, 
uh, you know, there's that movie uh, um, uh, in the realm of the senses, which is just extended sex scenes. And I think after a while, when you're just shown the same things, though the 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 purpose is lost, and there's no actual uh, filmmaking consideration behind them. And, and uh, it's interesting you should mention in the realm of the senses because I just saw that within the past year, and I hated it. Yeah, I wasn't. I, about, be, I thought it was so. Re- repetitive and yeah. lost all its shock value after about two scenes. Yeah, exactly. And they kept it was it was just sex scene after sex scene after sex scene. And I have no problem with seeing graphic sex or violence in films as long as there's a purpose. And I don't think there was in either of those films. Mm. <coughs> and it's actually thinking about it now as well. The Nightingale actually, like in terms of the premise of it, reminds me a fair bit of The Revenant as well. Like, yep. You know, similar kind of concept of Leo is just trying to track down Tom Hardy th- all through that film to just you know get revenge. Over what he had, you know, over him killing his son. So, uh, and it was, I think what The Revenant did well that this didn't do is that The Revenant just focused on Leo and Tom as characters and maybe one or two other individuals. But this one was just, it just kept adding characters and trying to add in little bits and pieces with those characters. And that just, again, diluted the original purpose of. The journey. I think some of the characterizations are fairly broad. Um, I think what we've learned from the last five to ten years of filmmaking is that a, a villain tends to be more interesting the more that they actually demonstrate recognizable human traits. Um, and I think Sam Claflin's character in this film is just st- way too extreme. And, th- and that's not to say that, that there was anything... That, that, that these people were gentlemen or did anything that wasn't awful when they were colonializing Tasmania and, the, and Australia. But I think that that character is so over the top in terms of his just... Isn't he? Just reprehensible qualities. And that you just you say... Well, I, I was speaking to somebody else about this, and they, they said... And this is a, a person who's kind of an expert on Australian history. And the killing of indigenous peoples was actually a much more mundane activity that occurred by, you know, God-fearing landowners who, you know, kind of were going out to round up um, the, who they referred to as the invaders, uh, comically, um, as obviously there was, it was the other way around, but, but or, or people that were, you know, infringing on their way of life or the way they imagined it there, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't take a huge amount of malevolence to have that attitude. It was ordinary people that were doing this as well. Yeah. And, and the two main, um, villains in this film um, one is handsome and one is kind of traditionally ugly um, by the way that that Damon Harriman act the actor Damon Harriman who is actually the guy who played uh, Charles Manson in Once Upon a Time in America I don't know if you knew yeah, that yeah. and and he's kind of traditionally kind of ugly looking so I thought that Jennifer Kent was actually trying to make a comment with the Sam Claflin character because Sam Claflin is actually an actor who comes from a couple of teen heartthrob films, like he he was in the film where he's a paraplegic, and um, he, he was uh, he, had str- looking after he had a string of films, <laughs> yeah. uh, blockbusters. Like uh, he was in the Fourth Pirates of the Caribbean, and he was in Snow White and the Huntsman as sort of that romantic. Yes, interest. he's he's like yeah. a hunk. He's like a, a yeah. you know a dreamy like a dreamy young actor. Um, yeah, and I thought that the she English was equivalent of us. I thought that, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I thought the casting was an intentional. Um, point of hers to say, look, even these people who appear to be handsome and charming on first blush were, were, were doing these same ac- actions. But the way he is written is just so vile and repugnant that you kind of 
eventually just kind of lose the ability to believe him. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, even if uh, the way they, they behave does reflect reality, I don't think that necessarily makes it good filmmaking. No. And I mentioned 12 Years a Slave before, and obviously, you know, the, the events in that movie probably reflected uh, reality incredibly accurately. Yeah. But that doesn't actually mean that there was any consideration behind that film. And after a while, you're just being shown as opposed to what I think filmmaking should be, which sh- it should make you th- think about these situ- situations. And this film just didn't do that at all. I mean, I think the ex- I think she was so certain that she wanted to drive home just how awful these people were that she's resorting to these scenes that just didn't really make sense to me. Like when he kills the kid because the kid is whining or something. You know, well, I, I, I didn't even... Just, just didn't track. Well, at one point, that almost seemed like it was going to be his redeeming quality was throughout that, you know, that journey that he was taking an interest in this boy and essentially taking him under his wing and teaching him. And that was like the only point where I thought maybe, okay, now we're tr- we're humanizing him a little bit and, and understanding him. And then... And how much more powerful would that have been if, you know, this boy had... He, he'd continued to take this boy under his wing and this boy was his point of view was slowly twisted by mm-hmm. this man's actions mm-hmm. and this boy who may not yet, yet inherently ha- or you know have that sort of hatred uh, ingrained in him mm. develops it yeah uh, but there was none the of that generation yeah. I mean that's yeah. kind of the idea of the film right that this is that this has been passed down and this continues to this day yeah. in this yeah. country and it's well, a, I mean it's trying to struggle with that idea but it's kind of short-circuiting that idea as well a little bit I feel yeah. like well that's the other thing that I was going to mention with this film as well is that a lot of the you know they often talk about as well that films whenever films are made they're also reflective of the time they were made so yes. the fact that this is a film that's made in 2019 is also reflective of you know, uh, women and, you know, people of colour being quite angry at the white man with power and he is a white man. And not only just that, but also he uses his class as, like, also a bargaining chip of power above a lot of the other white male characters in it. So it's like a very strong, rich white guy, you know, fucking over everyone else within society. And so, like, and obviously that there's, you know, there's a strong rebellion against a lot of that at the moment and like all of that completely understand and if that's the point they want to make that that that's that's fine then maybe the solution is just don't provide him as much airtime as he Mm -hmm. had if you want to paint that picture you you can paint that with showing him on five seconds as opposed to the 55 minutes or whatever of screen time that we saw saw of him because it's not adding anything more. To and it's not his story. I think yeah. that is this film's problem. It adds and adds and adds, and nothing that it adds superficially adds any depth to the film whatsoever. And so, the, I, so yeah. there are a couple moments though that I really, really um, responded to, and I want to call out one of them specifically. So, after all these repugnant characters, we finally get this nice white character. You know, this this older man with his racist wife, who's kind of brought in line by his good nature. And so he invites Billy and um, what's her name? Uh, uh, Nightingale. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> Claire. Claire uh, Billy and Claire right, and yeah. to have dinner and Billy's originally sitting on the floor and he invites them over to the table uh, inv- and says, you can s- sit and eat with us. So superficially, this moment is a white savior moment. And you're, you're, you're saying, well, look, well, not all the white people were bad back then. Look at this one guy who, you know, sh- extended this kindness t- to him. And I love Billy's reaction in that scene because superficially, again, you think, 
oh, he's, he breaks down and becomes emotional because this man has extended him this kindness and he feels gratitude toward the man. But that's not it at all. He says, Billy says, this is my country. This is my home. And like, it's not, his reaction is, I shouldn't have to be asked to sit at the table in my own home. And this is this moment of this great humiliation for him because he has been shown this kindness, but it just underscores the fact that this is a fucked up situation and it shouldn't be like this. And so I thought her message was clear in that scene, although some people actually interpret that scene a little bit differently than I do. But I thought that was a moment when I felt like she was, she had found kind of what she wanted to say and was saying it in an effective way. But unfortunately, it was kind of lost in some of these other moments. What are, what are the other interpretations that you've heard? Was was that this that he was literally grateful to this uh, man yeah. and that he felt like uh, that that he's thank you thank you for allowing me to sit at your table. Yeah, I didn't get that. I got no, okay. Yeah, you, you, you agree with my yeah. interpretation. Yeah. I had listened to another podcast where actually two of the people on it had a differing opinion on it, and I was obviously in complete agreement with the, the second person, or was it the first person? No, um, <laughs> whoever uh, it was, we need to uh, poach him off that podcast. Yes, get right. him here. Well, it's an American podcast, so I don't know if that'll be. Possible, they can they can make the trip, <laughs> but um, but and I felt like we got a lot of clout over here, <laughs> and, and I felt like there were a lot of moments with Billy that kind of delivered what I wanted to de- wanted it to deliver because I thought that that was really kind of what she wanted to say, but she but she had so there was. There were there were just too many different ideas about who was a victim and and who and and who had the right to to to, to the anger that they felt kind of yeah. Blakey, say something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I yeah, I'm uh, I agree. And it, again, though, I just I just there was no real depth to to that. I mean, to any well, of yeah, that. well, for all, all, for all of for any of those powerful moments, and I'm certainly not saying the film was void of. Uh, you know, significant uh, moments, but they just didn't work in relation to each other. I mean, uh, the film was full of, uh, you know, segments or sections that really had a lot of potential or fulfilled that potential, as many, and there were probably as many that didn't. Um, But together, it just just seemed so, um, like, haphazardly assembled. Mm -hmm. And so I agree with you. I think that was one of the better scenes in the film, but in relation to everything that was going on around it, uh, I think from a narrative point of view especially, it just felt, okay, so now we're here at this place and then we're there at this place. And and especially, I think, if, if half of the film is um, this uh, narrative-driven uh, revenge story. And I, I, think, I think Billy's side of the story is less... Uh, immediately uh, like a narrative... Uh, uh, sort of um, narrative, narratively driven. Um, but... It culminates in sort of them getting to this town uh, and confronting this guy, but because it, it had been such a, a patchwork of uh, or a mess uh, beforehand, it, it just it completely falls flat. Did mm-hmm. you guys see uh, Rolf to Here's the Tracker? Yes, years ago now. Yes, yeah. that so that film I just saw within the past four or five months, and I was blown away by it. And I think. Also, The Nightingale suffered for me a little bit in comparison to that because I thought that has David Gulpalil as the star, as the tracker, and yeah. it has a couple other, um, you know, they're, they're trying to find um, a, uh, an indigenous person who's accused of a crime and has run through the bush, which is kind of similar to Sweet Country from last year, which I also, which I think I liked more than you guys did. So, um, yeah, but, yeah, but, but that explores similar themes. And I think both of those films being in the back of my mind when I saw... The Nightingale kind of de- 
decre- diminish some of its value for me. I have to say though, I w- I think that I liked it both. I liked it more than both of you did. The I actually, yes, yeah. I actually I think in the moment, um, I, I I agree with everything you're saying about the narrative kind of proceeding in a haphazard fashion. But I think individual moments in it really, like you said, Blake, the opening scene. But then also, you know, the the power of these individual kind of set pieces really did linger with me. And I, I do want to kind of, you know, if, if we're going to be wrapping up the discussion soon, kind of state that I think it is a, it has a lot of immediacy in, in the actual wa- viewing of it. And I, I did, I was quite taken with, with it in general, I would mm. say. Yeah. Well, the other thing I think is like th- that I can't help but mention is the fact that I, it felt in, like it, it just felt really cliche at a lot of moments as well. Like, I don't know, like it just felt... Uh, I think it's if especially in the two villainous characters, yeah. Diamond Harriman and, and Sam Claflin. But even as well, like even you know, um, Claire meeting Billy and you know having this not liking him and treating him poorly to slowly coming to like him and slow and like I feel like I've just seen that I've so seen, many times. I before. agree, but I think it actually would have would was appropriate or could have been appropriate in this film, but I don't I, I don't think they handle it very well. Mm. Exactly, and that's what I guess I'm. Yeah, what I'm trying to mention is that the clichéness. Like, yeah. it, I think my biggest frustration with this film is it seems like all the right ingredients were there. It's just maybe they, if you're thinking about making like a cake, they just put way too much of one ingredient in there and they spoil. What type they, of cake do you think the naughty guy? <laughs> Um, Bird flavored, <laughs> blackberry, I think, or uh, uh, yeah. like a dark kind of dense. Yeah, devil's food cake, good yeah. one. Yeah, uh, top three. Okay, what is our top three for this? Because I've written down these three films and I can't actually remember. Top three films about birds. No. Was it actually no? Okay. <laughs> uh, revenge, right? Didn't we go with a revenge? Yeah, revenge films. Ah, true. Which revenge film is I think. Do, do your answers actually uh, conform to that? Yeah. Topic. <laughs> I think it's. The, first, I think it's the strongest. Like when I was like look, looking at the uh, top three for this, I think it's the strongest like category we've had. Like a lot of, there's a lot of films oh, about yeah. revenge. Throwing but down really really good ones as well. Like okay. It was really tough. To All pick right, Mister uh, Strength. Yeah. Why don't you give us? Uh, yeah, why don't you go first. Yeah. Yeah. Number three, Toy Story Four. <laughs> <laughs> Gladiator. Uh, one of the all-time revenge films. Are you not entertained? <laughs> That's actually a question to you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, um, yeah. What can you say about Gladiator that has not already been said? Um, it is. It's a, a rom com. Yes. Yeah. It's what it's. Yeah. It stars Kermit the Frog. <laughs> yeah, it was. There's heaps of things we could say about Gladiator. <laughs> that said. None of them true though. Um, and weirdly, getting a sequel. Uh, do you know there's a yeah. scene in Gladiator? I think it's just after the initial battle where like Maximus is washing his hands or like working walking through the aftermath of the battle, and you can see a guy in jeans and t-shirt and a wristwatch backing out of the shot. Yeah. yeah, and there's also one where you can see a car driving yeah. in the background as well. And then there's obviously the Kermit the Frog scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> All right, number two. It's not easy being green. Yeah, number two is Unforgiven. Mm. Um, I love that film. That is just awesome. Um, you know, it's funny. I thought about that film when I was compiling my list and I thought that's not a revenge film of course it's the revenge for the prostitute it's not it's not revenge felt by Clint Eastwood he's that's just the he's just the deliverer of it no, that no. scene where they talk about free ones heaps for like free sexual favors from the prostitutes uh. and I find it really funny <laughs> and I can't help it just the term free ones and they say heaps 
Anyway, if you don't remember the scene, and Kermit <laughs> the Frog is in it also. He is in it. Now that's an interesting coincidence. <laughs> but it is a revenge one because. Um, oh, you're right. It is. I just didn't. I was telling you how I didn't think of it. I, I excluded yeah. it from my. No, but it is also because he goes to seek retribution for how they treat his friend. Yes. Later on in the film, that's true as well. And number one is my favorite film of all time. Once upon a time, time in, in the West. Yeah, that's a great that one. That is, yeah, that's just, yeah. Well, it's my favorite film of all time. So, uh, yeah, it's an awesome film. If you haven't seen it, Spaghetti Western, uh, one of the probably the greatest opening sequence oh, of all yeah, time yeah. in a theme. Uh, see, I think that movie has five in, uh, amazing films scenes. Sorry, so some of the best scenes in any film. The best flashback in any film, the, maybe the greatest score of any film, and I think like it sort of doesn't come together for me. I still really like it, but there's something that doesn't click with me with that film. It's his favorite film of all time, John. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is like you're kicking a puppy. You're wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, I, I can certainly uh, empathise with uh, uh, caring about that film a lot, and I'm, I'm not uh, disagreeing with you on the quality of that film. But there's something about it that doesn't. A hundred percent click considering uh, the strength of so many of its components. Uh, Derek, go. Top three. So mine were a little bit kooky. And I think as I looked at my list of, of favorite films, um, the, the big revenge films are not necessarily represented near the top. So I actually picked some kind of kooky choices here. Um, see if you go with me on any of them. Uh, so one, um, uh, and again, I didn't number them, but um, one of them was uh, The Princess Bride. <laughs> ah, I can't <laughs> go with you on that one. Primarily because of, hello, my name is Diego Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. And they've been talking about doing a sequel to that too uh, recently. No, a remake, I believe. Remake? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, and everyone's upset about it, including me. Um, so I, I decided I would just throw that in there. I, I love his his vengeance quest. It's 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 moving. Um, <laughs> Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. True. Khan is pissed. Yeah, true. He was left on that planet to die. And he's gonna kill. Yeah, and he's got the great, the great quote on that. Did you ever hear the old Klingon proverb that revenge is the death of dish best served cold? It's very cold in space. <laughs> cool. Ricardo Montalban <laughs> kicking it into high gear. Uh, lastly, um, this probably is the number one, but um, it's only film I've only seen this year. It's called Harakiri. Uh, it's the 1962 film by Masaki Kobayashi, and I, from the looks on your face, I'm guessing you guys haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. No, but way. it's a film about a samurai. I think I actually own the DVD of it. You might. You should watch it. Yeah. Uh, a samurai who comes to well, we don't we don't actually know why he's coming there in the first, and so it's kind of a spoiler to even reveal why it's a revenge film. So I won't go into it too much more. I'll just say, yeah, you got to see it. It's 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 amazing. Um, an amazing amount of is accomplished dramatically in this very small set with these with a relatively few characters and some flashbacks and it's fantastic is that was you three that was three oh, okay and <coughs> my top three th- number three i actually haven't seen in a very long time so this is going on nostalgia and it's lady snowblood number two is irreversible Didn't and i like snowblood come up in another top three for you recently i feel like you mentioned it i'm not gonna let you race through your top three like you always do john I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna grill you on some of these. I might have. What? Lady tell me about Lady Snowblood. I actually can't. I haven't seen that movie in about 15 years, but I remember loving it as a okay, kid. Okay, cool. Uh, my number two is Irreversible, and I don't. I won't oh, race through terrible this. Terrible grilling. 
I capitulated well, pretty quickly. Well, well I, I can tell you uh, um, uh, my, uh, about my number two. Uh, it's irreversible, and that's because the revenge Fantastic comes at the film. start. Mm. And I think um, uh, the fascinating thing about that film is that the revenge comes, then you see the act for which the re- uh, revenge is um, committed, and then it gives you an hour because the film plays each this in reverse, the last scene first. It gives you an hour to sort of deliberate over those uh, pretty horrific acts. And um, yeah, a very, think, very powerful film. I think Gaspar Noé is just an incredible filmmaker. He just well, yeah. I, I, challenges norms all the time. I, I was blown away by Irreversible and hadn't really liked a film by him until uh, this year or last Climax. year. Was that this year or last Climax, year? Climax, last year. Last yeah. year. La- sorry, last year. Yeah. I wasn't trying to um, do your accent. <laughs> I just was, uh, last yeah. year. And my number one isn't, I mean, I guess it's a revenge film, but doesn't feel very revengey. It's also a spaghetti western for a few dollars more, and that's really uh, only my number one, less for the revengeiness of it and more just because it's one of my favourite films. Can I tell you, I just saw, this is this is embarrassing, but I just saw The Man With No Name trilogy this year. Had you uh, never seen it? I had, I had seen one of the films, but I couldn't remember which one years which ago. It? I. Ultimately, I think I'd seen a fistful of dollars, uh, but which I, is the worst. Yeah, I a few do, for a few dollars more was by far my favorite. It's I so loved good. it. I, I think I what's good about it. for a few dollars more. I love Lee Van Cleef. It's very similar to <laughs> the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but it's more manageable in terms of like the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is sweeping it's epic. Big, good, Bad, is Ugly is too much. It just goes on. It goes on forever. <laughs> and, and I and I think the like, whole Civil War bit I could cut right out of it. Ah, uh, see, see, I think that it's <clears> half of the charm of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is how like how huge it is. But yeah. what I like about for a few dollars more is it's 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 the good, the bad, and the ugly with the fat trimmed, and I think it's really beautiful, that, amazing fat in the good, the bad, and the ugly. But um, uh, for a few dollars more is just is airtight, and that scene um, with uh, uh, El Indigo, the, the villain in the church when he uh, they set up the playing, uh, his, playing play, his music, playing his music box, yeah. and um, he says to that guy, "Now you hate me just enough," and the music plays, and it sets yeah. it up for the final bit when uh, Clint Eastwood comes in with his um, uh, identical music chime. Yeah. Uh, oh, great film. Yeah, that's all we have time for. Do we have any final thoughts on the Nightingale? Who wants to go first, Blakey? Uh, nah, not really. <laughs> Derek? I will be interested to see Jennifer Kent's next film because I think she's a very talented filmmaker. She just didn't quite get it right in this one, I guess. I actually feel the opposite. I think The Babadook was overrated. I and agree. I think this mm. is not a very good film. Yeah. Even though there's elements of her filmmaking which I think are incredibly strong, neither film has uh, um, uh, realized the promise. I did see The Babadook again recently and it didn't have as much impact on me yeah. the second time. Uh, this has been the Real Good Podcast. My name is John Roebuck. Thank you, Derek. Okay. And thank you, Blakey. Thank you. Uh, for more everything, go to realgood.com.au. That's real with two E's. Thank you. <laughs>